Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and this is All Things Tudor. Today, our guest is Gemma Holman, a British historian and author who specializes in late medieval history. She is particularly interested in the lives of royal and noble women at this time, which led to her first book entitled Royal Witches. That focuses on four royal women in 15th century England. All were accused of using witchcraft against the king. She is currently writing her second book. She works in the heritage industry and runs her historical blog called Just History Post. Gemma, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to chat with you. Thank you. I'm just so enraptured and enchanted by your book. What can you tell me about it? Yeah, so my book looks at four women who are part of the English royal family during the 15th century. So two of them were queens and two of them were married to princes of England. And they're all sort of very interesting women who all come from different backgrounds in life, but all of them marry into the royal family and sort of find themselves at the height of power. But invariably at different points of their lives, they have this sort of huge accusation thrown against them that they've used witchcraft against the king. Some of them are accused of trying to kill him and some of them are accused of sort of bewitching him to sort of falling in love with her and they all sort of have different consequences as a result of these accusations you know some of them kind of come out unscathed but others suffer quite severely and yeah the book just kind of looks at all of their lives and sort of what led up to these accusations and what sort of happened to them afterwards. Were you interested in these women or did you already have an interest in history before you wrote the book? Yeah, so I had an interest in history really from sort of when I was a child, you know, I liked sort of looking around castles and uh, I was reading sort of all the old horrible history books and things like that. So yeah, I really enjoyed it all through school and everything. And I decided to study it at university, partially because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I knew I liked history. So I thought it was quite a nice thing to study. And yeah, it was only really when I was at university that I kind of realised properly that history is my passion, actually. And it's not just kind of little hobby I like doing that it's sort of something I'd like to do full time and do research and find out more about these interesting people that lived before us and also sharing that with people. I was telling people all the stuff I'd learned over coffee anyway, so I might as well turn it into a book instead. (laughs) Exactly. And what a great book too, by the way. Thank you. Um, I did want to know, were you interested in the four women you wrote about? What drew you to write their stories? So it was one of those things that I kind of fell into it, really. It was when I was doing my master's at university and I stumbled across the story of Eleanor Cobham, who's the second woman in my book. I was actually doing a seminar about her husband, who was Duke Humphrey of Gloucester. He was a really powerful prince of England. He was really important when Henry VI was a child in helping to keep the kingdom together, basically. So I was reading all about him and then this 
thing kind of came up almost as an aside in his story, where it was kind of like this paragraph that just sort of said, oh, and his wife was accused of witchcraft and there was a huge trial and she was imprisoned for life. And I sort of thought, what? <laughs> that, that, that sounds really interesting and like there should be a bit more about that. So I was kind of drawn to her story. And when I sort of started researching her, I remembered, you know, when I was back at school, having read Philippa Gregory's really famous, you know, novel series about the White Queen and how in that book, I remembered a scene of Elizabeth Woodville and her mother, Jaquetta, doing witchcraft. And because I knew that they were sort of around at the same time as Eleanor, I sort of thought, well, is this something that Philippa Gregory's just made up to make, you know, an interesting story? Or is there a historical basis for this? And once I researched that, I saw, no, actually, both of them were accused of witchcraft as well. And so suddenly I was like, okay, this seems to be a bit of a trend. You know, this is three royal women accused of witchcraft within sort of a few decades of each other. And so I started digging into it more. And that's when I then found Joan's story, who's the fourth woman in the book. And I just found it so interesting. So I wrote about it at university. And it was just one of those things that once I finished university, whenever someone would ask me what I'd done for my dissertation, I'd tell them the story. And every single person I spoke to said, wow, that would make a really good book. And so after you hear that quite a few times, I was like, yeah, you know, it would make a good book. You know, these are really interesting women. And it's a really interesting thing that happened. Because, you know, before I studied them, I didn't even really know that there were sort of witchcraft trials in the medieval period. You know, everybody knows about sort of the Salem witch trials and things in the 17th century. But you know, this was a good two, three hundred years before all that. So yeah, that just kind of made me want to share that with people and let them know what the stories basically. And aren't we glad you did that? Well, let's talk about the four women because they do lead up to our Tudor era, our Tudor dynasty that we all love so much. So you want to give us a brief rundown of all four of them and what they were accused of and what happened to them? Yes, the first woman in the book is Joan of Navarre. So she married Henry IV, who was king right at the start of the 15th century. And she was his second wife. He'd already had a wife before he was king. He'd already had children with her. So they sort of had a bit of a companionship marriage in a way. You know, they were both older. They'd both been married before. It wasn't kind of a political match. You know, she didn't really bring much to the marriage. But they had, you know, a, a lovely sort of marriage together. And once he died and his son became king, she she stayed in England and she was sort of very well received at court. Her stepson really liked her and he gave her lots of gifts and benefits. And she was sort of basically having quite a nice widowhood in England, enjoying lots of money because her husband had given her a really large dower, which was like her sort of annual income. And it was the largest one that any English queen had had up to that point. So she had lots of money as well to sort of enjoy in her widowhood. And she basically gets accused in 1419 and she's accused of trying to kill the king, her stepson, using magic. She's accused by her personal confessor, so like her priest, and he says, yep, she made me do some things to try and kill him. And so she gets arrested for this, and she's sort of put in kind of honourable sort of home confinement so it's not like she's thrown in a dungeon cell you know she's kept in a castle she has servants and nice clothes still but she's never put on trial and sort of 
on her stepson's deathbed, which is about three or four years later, he completely releases her and says, you know, she's to go back to the position she was before, like nothing had ever happened, lest she be a charge on our conscience. And basically, all the evidence points to these being political accusations against her as a way for Henry to claim her money, because he had restarted the wars with France, and they were going well, but war is the most expensive thing a monarch could do, and he didn't really have enough money to do it. So by accusing Joan of witchcraft, the crown was able to take her huge dower income and use it for themselves, basically. So it seems that everything was fabricated just for those reasons, and it's only as Henry is lying dying that he's suddenly feeling really guilty that he's accused his stepmother of this horrible crime so yeah he just sort of makes sure that she's restored and it does happen after he dies she is released she doesn't suffer anything else for the rest of her life and she sort of comes off unscathed and lives for about another 15 years or so so she's in a way a bit of a success story but Eleanor Cobham who I mentioned earlier she's sort of the one who comes out worst out of the four women and she had married another one of Joan's stepsons, Duke Humphrey. They had been having an affair, basically, beforehand. Humphrey had been married to another woman, and Eleanor was his mistress. And due to various politics going on in Europe at the time, the Pope annuls Humphrey's marriage. But by this time, he obviously didn't really care about his wife anymore, so he married Eleanor instead. And Eleanor was a lot lower status than him. She was the daughter of a knight, so much lower social class, sort of, in terms of the whole England she was doing quite well for herself but not really the kind of status to be marrying a prince but the two had sort of married for love and it was a really successful marriage but by the sort of 1440s Humphrey was the heir to the throne all of his brothers had died and King Henry VI was still quite young he wasn't married he didn't have any kids of his own and basically Eleanor gets accused of using witchcraft and it's said that she's basically tried to kill the king so that her husband will become king and that'll make her queen. So it's seen as this really ambitious power grab that she wants to be queen and so she's using this witchcraft to make that happen. Her case is a little bit more blurred. There's lots of witnesses who say that she made them do witchcraft and things like that. It seems that she had maybe been involved in some form of astrology, but that wasn't necessarily sort of treasonous or, or evidence that she'd actually tried to kill the king. But because at this time Humphrey had lots of powerful enemies who wanted to get him out of government so that they could have control over the king they really pushed for this trial against her and this time she doesn't have anyone on her side and so she is found guilty of using witchcraft she's divorced from Humphrey because one of her defences that she tries to use is that she wasn't using witchcraft to kill the king she was using witchcraft to make Humphrey fall in love with her and so the church sees this as a form of coercion and so the marriage isn't legal because he wasn't in his right mind when he married her. So they get divorced and she gets put in prison for the rest of her life, which is another sort of, again, 10, 15 years or so. Yeah, there's no evidence that she ever saw Humphrey again. And he definitely does have a big fall from grace after this happens. He really loses his position at court. And he dies a few years later, also accused of treason. And so that's definitely sort of a much more severe outcome for her. And then the last two women is Elizabeth and Jaquetta Woodville, who we've mentioned. So their mother and daughter. And they basically get caught up in the Wars of the Roses, which is a civil war that happens right at the end of the 15th century. And during the sort of various fighting, Elizabeth by this point has married 
the King of England. But one of his cousins is Warwick, who's known as the Kingmaker, because he helped Edward take the throne from Henry VI. And so he spent the first few years of Edward's reign having lots of power and influence at court and sort of being the king's right-hand man. But over time, Elizabeth and her family take over influence because she's the queen. So, you know, it's natural for that to happen. And Edward, you know, grows into his kingship. And so he starts to make decisions for himself rather than listening to Warwick. And Warwick feels like he's lost his influence and power and it's all because of the Woodvilles. So he sort of stirs up a rebellion. And during this, he takes control of the king and he actually executes several members of Elizabeth and Jaquetta's family, the sort of the patriarch of the family and one of the sons. Whilst this is happening, Jaquetta is also accused of using witchcraft by one of his followers. Again, it's this kind of very political, turbulent environment where he sees control of the king, he's executed the Woodville men, and he kind of needs to prove that he had a reason for doing that because he kind of does it all very underhand and illegally. So if he can prove that Jaquetta was using witchcraft, then he can prove it's an evil family and then he did the right thing. But Jaquetta manages to come out of it unscathed, basically because the country falls apart whilst Edward is arrested. And so Warwick eventually has to release him to sort of stop the country completely falling apart. And so once Edward's got power back, he's obviously not going to let his mother-in-law be accused of witchcraft. And so she's sort of exonerated from the crimes. But this rumour of witchcraft just keeps on spreading across the country over the decades, and it never quite goes away. So more than 10 years later, when Richard III seizes the throne from Elizabeth's son, Edward V, he has to come up again with reasons why he's a meant to be king instead of Edward V. And the best reason for this is if Edward and Elizabeth's marriage wasn't legal, because that would mean that all of their children were illegitimate and illegitimate people couldn't take the throne. And so he lists a whole load of reasons as to why their marriage was invalid. But really importantly, he says, as everybody knows, Jaquetta and Elizabeth did witchcraft against the king to make him fall in love with her. So he's bringing back these rumours from sort of a decade or so before hand and is bringing it back again now for his own uses. And again, Elizabeth does eventually manage to come out of this unscathed and has her reputation restored. But it really shows the power of rumour at this time and how once an accusation's out there, it never quite goes away. Well, let's talk about rumour. Did people just decide, oh, they're a witch. That's how I'm going to take them down. Were these women extremely beautiful? Did they just do it to powerful women? Did they have sex appeal? Or was it all of the above? Basically, yeah, all of the above is quite a mix. You know, because this is before all the early modern witch trials, there isn't so much in the air of kind of random accusations. You know, it's not like later on where you could just point to anyone and say they're a witch and then it spreads around and everyone points their fingers. It's not quite at that climate yet. People are believing witches exist, but they're not quite sure to what extent or what people can do. So it's not a usual accusation to go for, but it works in the case of these women because... People have seen the previous century, there's been a few cases on the continent. So at the French court, at the papal court, people are starting to be accused of witchcraft at proper royal courts. So it's kind of in people's minds. And it's a really good thing to use against a woman 
Because at this time, if you've got a powerful man at court that you don't like, you can throw so many accusations against him that he's been misleading the king, that he's been giving bad advice, that he's been stealing money from the government, he's failed to win battles. But women at court don't do any of that stuff. You know, they're not involved in the court in the same way. So you can't do the same accusations against them. And so witchcraft is something that comes outside the sphere of government. And so it's a lot easier to use against a woman. And it's really important what you're saying about like, you know, the power and the beauty, because that definitely applies to all of these women. You know, all of these women were accused at the height of their power. You know, they weren't accused when they were a nobody. Elizabeth was King's mother, you know, Jaquetta was the Queen's mother. Eleanor was married to the heir to the throne. You know, Joan was a dowager queen, so probably the least powerful of all of them, but she's still one of the most powerful women in the whole country. So it's not that they're nobodies. It's it's that they're powerful and they hold influence and people want to destroy that power. And the idea of them being beautiful plays quite a key part, I think, in the fact that all of these women contracted love marriages, which for their status at the time is quite unusual. Most people have political marriages. Maybe you have a love marriage later down the line if it's your third or fourth husband or something. But these are all women who married powerful men that they weren't necessarily expected to. You know, Eleanor was a mistress who married a prince of England. Elizabeth was the daughter of a knight who married the king of England. And so it definitely holds currency that these women would have used witchcraft against those men because it's kind of a well why else would he marry her and it's like of course there's loads of reasons why they would marry them they probably were beautiful from what we know they were intelligent from what we know they all would have been charming and they would have understood the language of the court and how to be an appealing woman so there's loads of reasons why they would but in terms of in a society where you're looking at what lands a woman can bring to a marriage and what money she can bring to a marriage and who her powerful relatives are, these marriages didn't make sense in that context. And so it's really easy to say, well, she's a beautiful woman who's married this powerful man. She must be a witch. Very strange to our way of thinking, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very different. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a fan of Tudor history... Come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Our group, All Things Tudor, is completely fascinated by Jaquetta and Elizabeth. And personally, I find Elizabeth Woodville so fascinating. She completely captivated a king basically from the first time he met her. Is that right? Yes, yeah. And I just want to know more about that. I mean, did she really cast a spell on him? What happened? What do we know about their first meeting? So if you believe 
the legends of their meeting, which they do hold some credence because the story of how they met was circulating within a few years of their marriage. So this isn't a story that's been made up 200 years later that people believe today. You know, this was circulating when they were both alive and were around for those to hear the rumours themselves. And indeed, they probably spread the rumours. And so according to the legend, Elizabeth, who had been married before, had been widowed. And she was having some problems with her mother-in-law, who wanted to basically take back the land of her son that was given to Elizabeth to maintain her and their children. And so she's been having all these battles. But, you know, her mother-in-law is a bit more powerful than her, and it's not looking too good for her. And one day she's at her parents' home, and she hears that the king is riding nearby. He's sort of hunting. He's off exploring his kingdom. And so she takes her two young sons, and she goes and stands sort of on the road underneath this tree and waits for the king to ride past and he does ride past and he sees this beautiful woman standing with these two young children looking really forlorn very upset and he can't help but go over and talk to her and she explains her plight and how she's just trying to look after her children and she needs this land and he decides you know he has to help this woman you know this beautiful poor woman and so he kind of becomes captivated by her and he agrees to help her but he can't resist going back to visit and And so he keeps on sneaking off for these secret visits to see her at home. And basically, he decides that he wants her to become his mistress. He really wants to be with her. He's really attracted to her. But Elizabeth is too noble a woman, so she wouldn't stoop to be as low as a mistress. And so she constantly says no to the king. And the fact that she's saying no only makes him want her more because it shows what a great woman she is. And so eventually he says, well, if if you won't be my mistress, then you'll have to be my queen instead. And he says that he wants to marry her. And so the two marry in secret at her family's home. Her mother's there and sort of a couple of people... you know, to help the priest. And that's pretty much it. And they have this clandestine marriage, supposedly on the 1st of May, which is a known sort of romantic day in the medieval period. It's associated with love and romance. And so it all fits together very poetically. And it's about six months or so later in sort of September time that the marriage finally gets revealed at court because the court is trying to arrange a marriage with a foreign princess for him. And he sort of has to eventually say, look, I can't marry any of these ladies because I'm already married. So it's definitely a really interesting story. It's a very romantic story. And although certain aspects of the story might seem a bit strange for us today, it sort of completely made sense to medieval minds that of course he, he would love this lady who's refusing him. In one version of the story, she even sort of holds a dagger to her throat and says that she'd rather die than be his mistress. And so it's really dramatic. Probably the reality is it didn't quite go that way. But I think there's definitely elements of it that you can say are in truth. You know, they they probably did meet in the sort of grounds of her family's home, because that's where she was based at the time. And she probably did come to him for help with her mother-in-law because we know that she was talking to another man at court who was a really good friend of Edward's asking for help around that time so they probably did meet through that way you know whether he was chasing her to be his mistress and she said no and all of this but again there probably is still elements of that but 
a lot of the story seems to be a way to emphasize how pure and chaste Elizabeth was, because by this time it was kind of accepted that the queen should be a young foreign virgin girl. You know, she, it was her first marriage. She hadn't been with anyone else. But Elizabeth was older than Edward. She wasn't foreign. She'd already been married. She'd already had several children. So she doesn't fit this mold. And so the way to prove that she's virginal-like is to show that she's chaste and she wouldn't sleep with the king. So it's a way to prove her purity in another way. So there's definitely elements of the story that kind of have a bit of a political agenda to it. But I think it's definitely fair to say that they happened to meet under these circumstances and that they were very attracted to each other. So the entire witchcraft thing really is based on the legend. May Day, they met for the first time. He's completely enchanted by her. And did the stories of witchcraft start right after they met or did they come in a few years later? Yeah, they came in quite a few years later, really. Much, much later. As I said, quite a few years into their marriage. But there was definitely a lot of shock at the time that it was revealed that they were married. You know, people sort of said, Okay, like we know she's beautiful, but she's not good enough to be a queen. You know, you can't go with her kind of thing. So it was definitely seen as a shocking marriage. And so that means when ideas of witchcraft come up, it makes a lot of sense because no one could understand the marriage when it happened. So if someone says, oh, well, maybe she bewitched him, suddenly go, ah. Well, that makes sense. You know, that's why he might marry her. And yeah, as you say, this idea that he's kind of captivated by her beauty, it does kind of lend itself to that. And, you know, the fact that the marriage was held secretly and only her mother was there. Again, it's this it's like with witchcraft. Witchcraft has this air of secrecy. It's something you do at home in your private lives. And the idea that it's these two women scheming together to ensnare the king, it's quite an easy story to tell from the story of how they met. It really is, and it falls into the theme of illicit love that we're talking about this month so well. And it is a story that is still captivating all these hundreds of years later. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Yeah, it really is, isn't it? I'm completely taken with her, and I, I would love to really know more about her. And what about you? Do you have any future books planned or anything you can tell us about? Yeah, so I've actually just finished up my second book. Sadly, of course, like many, has been slightly delayed from the events of the last few years. But yes, it's it's due to come out later this year. And it's sort of a similar theme looking at sort of powerful royal women in English history. And it's looking at the 14th century, so the court of Edward III. And it's a joint biography of his wife and queen, so Philippa of Hainault, but also his mistress. So again, he takes on a mistress later in life and she's called Alice Perez. So it's looking at Philippa and Alice. And again, it's a biography of their lives, you know, looking at what happened to them. How did they get into power? How did they use their power? And how did their femininity play into that? And they're quite two interesting contrasting characters because Philippa has this very angelic, sort of aura around her and this reputation of being, you know, one of the best queens that England had had at that point. And Alice is seen as this really evil, greedy mistress who has charmed the king into loving her. You know, he's an old man. And so she's, again, kind of a few rumours possibly of using witchcraft or just otherwise beguiling this old man into loving her and then using that to gain power for herself. And as is often the case, these stories don't necessarily always matter 
match up to the real woman and they're a bit more nuanced than that but they're definitely two really interesting characters and so again it's really interesting to look at that that idea of women holding power at this time in the country. Exactly. They seemed to really enjoy making everyone a witch that they didn't understand, didn't they? Yeah, pretty much. It's an easy explanation. If you can't explain it, it must be a witch. (laughs) It has to be. I did want to ask you one question back to Elizabeth and Edward, because their daughter, of course, became the wife of Henry VII. And here we go with the Tudor dynasty. Do you believe Elizabeth's past influenced how the people of England saw Elizabeth of York at all, or was that left in the past? I think it was mostly left in the past. I mean, it's hard to tell how much the rumours were believed because, you know, all we've got are these two men at different points of time saying that they've done witchcraft. And although Richard III kind of says, well, everybody knows they did witchcraft, it might just be that everyone remembered the accusations against her, but that doesn't mean that everyone believed that they had done it. So it's a bit hard to say how much that would have followed through. But there isn't any evidence, you know, once Henry VII comes to the throne, there isn't really any evidence that they have any negative effects from this. And the rumours of witchcraft definitely persist because, you know, later in the Tudor reign, you have Thomas More writing his chronicle and he talks about this, you know, he says Richard III accused Elizabeth Woodville of using witchcraft against him. And this is sort of 30, 40, 50 years later. So the rumours definitely persist, but it's how much they're believed that's, that's a bit more tricky. And I think Elizabeth had generally a really good reputation when she was queen. You know, there are some people who who don't like her and her family and there's a few events that sort of come up that that have question marks, but generally she's seen as a good queen and she's seen as acting really well and how a queen should do. And particularly in London, people love her in London and, you know, she spends two different periods in sanctuary in London and this is at a time of turbulence in the country and so she's seen as having suffered with the country and you know you have sort of ballads and things written in London at the time sort of saying oh isn't she wonderful you know she's been locked away with us and she's been suffering with us so there's lots of evidence that she had a really good reputation and I think a lot of that would have reflected well on her daughter Elizabeth who marries Henry VII because you know she would have inherited Elizabeth's good qualities you know she was brought up a princess at court so she had been taught by Elizabeth she'd have been taught by Jaquetta how she should behave and I think even if there's a little bit of a question mark around her mother, the power of sort of her father's reputation and the fact that she's the daughter of Edward IV is really powerful. And so if she was acting well as a queen, I don't think people would have thought any worse of her because of these rumours around her mother. Well, thank you for that. I just happened to think of it. And I don't recall ever reading anything bad about her or her being associated with witchcraft in any way, even though her mother and grandmother were, which is interesting. So like you said, they apparently loved her so much that it didn't even come up. I think as well, she's such a powerful symbol of unity. When the country's been through several years of of fighting and Edward V and then Richard III taking the throne and then Henry VII taking the throne from him and there's been so much strife and fighting and Elizabeth is a symbol of the old meeting the new and, you know, it's unifying the two sides by marrying Henry VII. And I think 
that's so much more important than anything that's gone on beforehand is finally the monarchy is kind of stable. Obviously, you still have rebellions and things, but things are a lot more united and she's a calming queen who's just giving birth to heirs and and doing what she should do. And I think that's really important for her reputation as well. It seemed to take care of what had happened in the past, didn't it? Where can we find you on social media? And I want to hear more about your blog, please. Yeah, so I have my own Twitter account sort of as an author, which is Gemma H. Author on Twitter. But yeah, I also run this historical blog called Just History Posts. Um, just had my five-year anniversary running it at the end of last year. So it's got its own website, justhistoryposts.com, where I post sort of various blog posts on all aspects of history. So a lot of medieval stuff is on there as that's my speciality. But I sort of cover all different periods, you know, the Georgians, the Victorians, lots of ancient history as well. But I also have a Facebook and a Twitter account for it, which are again just just history posts. And I post sort of daily posts on there, which are a bit smaller, kind of bite-sized things, just sharing interesting objects or places that I come across. So yeah, people can find me on any of those and sort of keep up with me on there. That's great. Thank you. And again, thanks for being here today. I'm absolutely smitten with Elizabeth Woodville. And thanks for shining a new light on her, so to speak, and her mother. And thanks for joining us on All Things Tudor. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.